Hi, this is Jan Major, and I'm here again with Eric for his Cine Life podcast. Hi, Jan. Hi, Eric. So you're back for the second one. Um, this is the one that I initially wanted you on the podcast for, and I'm happy that you agreed to do it because we're going to talk about the late Gerard Major, uh, your dad. And uh, the reason I wanted to talk about him and kind of go over some of his stories is because he was a business consultant for many, many decades. And he has a lot of interesting stories that I think should be out there. And some of them are useful. Some of them aren't so useful. They're just entertaining and I like them. <laughs> and uh, I want to un start unpacking these. And we don't have to do it all in one episode, of course. But uh, I do want to start that process of unpa unpacking these and sort of uh, almost immortalizing these stories uh, somewhere. And I thought, well, I have a podcast. We could do that here. Um, and to give you guys some context of, uh, uh, you know, about this, this person that I'm talking about, uh, he, this, this guy knew things. Like, you could, he could talk almost about any subject matter, uh, you know, and unpack it in great detail. And, and it's just like, how does one brain have a repository full of all this information? Uh, you know, I didn't know, for example, that New York City apartment buildings don't have a 13th floor until he told me. And it just so happens that this is the 13th episode of the podcast. So isn't that interesting? Yeah, and just to put a little flair on who my dad was, um, my boyfriend has a podcast. He lives with me. He knows a ton about me. I know a ton about the things that he's interested in, and I can bring a whole other perspective to them. And he wants to talk about my dad. <laughs> because, frankly, he's way more interesting than me. Well, it's not <laughs> that. It's not that. It's just that you have this... You have this guy who lived this whole life up until like 83 or 84 years of age and never got around to writing a book and should have written a book about all of his experiences and the lessons that he has obtained in consulting businesses of all sizes, small family-owned businesses and big corporations. And I just feel like that information is at risk of being lost to the, the world simply by the fact that they're not being retold. Now, in, the, in a perfect world, he would have written a book or maybe gotten a ghostwriter to kind of written a book based on his experiences, but that didn't happen, obviously. Um, Eric, he, d he did write a book. Where is that book? Out of print. Exactly. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so it's just like, I didn't know about that. And yeah. it's obviously not accessible. He didn't even have a manuscript. You know, he never even showed me a manuscript of anything like that. So that's actually really interesting. And now we're gonna have, I'm going to have to hunt for that. Everybody, we're looking for this book. I don't know the title. <laughs> I don't know the title either. Either I have seen the manuscript. Also, he wrote um, columns in we gotta find those columns. magazines. Yeah, we got to find those. Yeah, and he uh, did all of this under the name D.C. Hillary. DC. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> Gerard had a lot of uh, false names, a lot of aliases. That's an interesting... What, what are some of his aliases that he used? So, um... Dad loved aliases. Like, he always had a reason for using them, but really he just liked using aliases. Um, 
the reasoning behind it was that as part of his job as a consultant, he was frequently, he frequently interviewed people for jobs. And he preferred to interview them under an alias in case they got pissed off and came after him. Um, he uh, started doing consulting in a time uh, back in, I guess, the 40s maybe, when it wasn't as common or well-known a profession as it is now. And a lot of what they did was hiring and firing people. And so um, according to him, back then they intentionally hired fairly large men for these roles just in case pissed off employees decided to attack them. And dad was um, six foot two at, uh, and he was born in 1928. So there weren't a lot of guys that big and tall at the time uh, he was born. Um, plus he just, he, he was uh, the type of person who got into a lot of skirmishes. So uh, he was very capable of taking care of himself. But just the same, he still had this sort of mentality and claimed that he needed to use aliases to protect himself. So um, he often went with androgynous names that um, just in case he wasn't available to conduct an interview with someone, he could then send in one of his uh, female colleagues who could then uh, do it. So. Let's see, what are some of the names? Um, well, while you're thinking of the names, I can actually just like give a, a real world example of why it was important for somebody in his position to use a false name uh, while interviewing people. Uh, I remember some, some years back, um, I had a production that was kind of done under the, uh, the Actors Union umbrella. And I remember there were people that I interviewed uh, for casting purposes that I ended up not casting and them coming out of the woodwork to sort of file complaints against me uh, for not hiring them and, and really like tr attempting to destroy my reputation on the internet. And, and that was an interesting experience. So I can understand why he uh, would want to do that, especially many decades uh, in his career. You know, you, you build up a lot of a resentment from the people you don't end up hiring or also firing at one company he was nicknamed jerry the knife <laughs> after uh that song mac the knife someone actually Holy took shit. the time to rewrite the lyrics to that song oh my with his name in it um well i guess if you've been fired you have plenty of time to do stuff like that oh this was someone he didn't fire Oh, this was <laughs> yeah. somebody still employed. Interesting. Yeah. Um. So the names. I. I I I, I am thought, completely blind. Yeah, the names I am right too. Because I used to I know, know three or four of them. Yeah, he freaking met my mom while using one of those names. <laughs> I can't believe. Imagine, imagine that going on a first date under a false name just in case it doesn't work out. So, no, he, he, he met her when he interviewed for her for a job. 
And then he ended up dating her. So, yeah. This was a while ago. <laughs> this this sounds like the born. Reagan era when, when that was acceptable. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. So, he interviewed her um, under a false name. And then uh, later on, he asked her out um, and told her that uh, that wasn't his real name. I know it started with an R. Um. Hmm. And then on their first date, she was totally confused and couldn't remember his name. But yeah, it, it ended up working out. She got the job. She got a husband and it worked until they got divorced. Nice. But yeah. <laughs> so off the, off the top of your head, what is... Let's go down the types of clients that he's had over the over the years, and uh, kind of. I know he, when I met him, he was running his own consulting firm out of his apartment on the Upper West Side, which is where you grew up. Yes. And uh, but he didn't start out doing that. No, he started out in um, a bunch working for a bunch of different consulting agencies. Some of them are still around. Um, I don't remember the exact ones. Then um, he uh, started his own uh, consulting agency, um, which is the one uh, he had with uh, he had when he met my mom. Um, and then uh, he uh, finally left there and started another one with my mom which was the one in uh, our apartment. But um, he worked with a whole bunch of clients. Uh, some of them are places that you might know, like uh, Cozy Shack Pudding was one of the biggest clients that I remember growing up. Um, they did. He did a lot of work with them. He would come home with tons and tons of pudding I still think that rice pudding is a totally acceptable breakfast food um, just because, you know, we needed space in the refrigerator. And, um, yeah, he also worked with a bunch of other smaller clients um, and places that uh, you probably haven't heard of. Um, he often worked with uh, family businesses in the food industry that was kind of his specialty he a really liked food um and loved eating and seemed to just fit well there in those companies but then he also um specialized in family businesses um so uh Part of what he did with them was kind of help them navigate how to exist and how to balance family with running an actual successful business, which for a lot of these companies uh, did not work very well, hence why they brought in a consultant. Um, there were things where siblings were suing each other for different parts of the business. There were incidents where um, someone wanted to 
pass the business on to a son or daughter or something, only that person was just completely incompetent. Um, there were incidents of nepotism where people hired family members who then just were not functioning in the business and were really hurting it. And um, You know, it's, uh, it's interesting because I never really thought that much about family owned and operated businesses that much. I guess prior to meeting Gerard, I always kind of romanticized it. Oh, isn't that nice? Like it's a family run business and you can hand it down, blah, blah, blah. But after hearing some of those stories and even working uh, with some family run businesses in a video production capacity, I'm actually kind of against family owned businesses now. Um, with my experience crossed with some of the experiences that were relayed to me from Gerard, uh, I don't, I don't think that uh, that's the way to go in, in, with a business structure because think about it. You have, you're going to have a group of talented people on staff, but unless they're blood, they're less likely to get promoted to uh, uh, the, the higher up positions simply out of fear of, you know, maybe the big guy doesn't want to be sued by his oldest son if he doesn't get, get the job or something like that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, um, I'm personally a little bit more, I think that it can work, um, but it ha people have to be really, really careful about it. So, for example, I um, when uh, I was working at the marketing agency, I did a decent amount of work with Schindler, the elevator company, which is... Uh, I believe, uh, owned by that family. Um, it is technically family owned, but it manages to function because it is more than that. Um, and it has grown to uh, a global, an effective global company. But then you have others where it just really doesn't. I guess part of it just is kind of how stupid are your relatives? <laughs> that is mostly what it comes down to. Yeah. If you, because there are a lot of companies that are helmed by families, but if the relatives are smart and competent, it works. If they're not, then. It doesn't. And unfortunately, when it comes to your relatives, particularly people's children, I, I don't think people are always all that good at figuring out whether their relatives are, are smart and competent. Yeah. And are they really all that invested in the business that the, I guess, the patriarch or the matriarch are running? Um, you know, and... It's hard. It's hard to say initially. You know, you never know once you start working with them, but you know, eventually you figure it. You figure it out. I, you know, I, I once had an experience where uh, the matriarch of a household uh, wasn't really that into this this business that I was participating in, and uh, didn't respect the talents of the staff and what they brought to the table. All all she saw was money leaving in that painter. <laughs> <laughs> and she couldn't envision money coming back in the long run. You know, there, there are people like that where they're kind of in a position of power, 
by default, but they ha- they don't really they really shouldn't be uh, because they haven't they, they don't have that ability to see the bigger picture. So, you know, if you invest now, you get it back, you know, three, five, tenfold, but down the road, you don't get it back the next day, you know, and uh, it, the, the, the people in ch- running these these businesses and making these financial decisions need to be the, the members of the families who understand that, that that's how it works. Mm-hmm. So let's tap into uh, some of Gerard's stories. Uh, any suggestions? There are a lot of them. I know. Well, what's immediately when I, when somebody says, oh, Gerard, he had some stories or something like that, which I always say when whenever he comes up, I mean, what, what's the first ones that you think of uh, as his daughter? Because I know the ones I think of are the raunchy ones. Uh, his, with me, when he was interacting with me directly, he was interacting with me uh, on a couple of levels. And one of those levels was, oh, I'm just another guy he can tell his raunchy stories to. And he seemed to take pleasure in that. But then obviously with maybe other people, he would, I don't know, because I'm not other people, but maybe he would uh, avoid some of those stories until he got to know them a little more. <laughs> I, I don't wish. know. Uh, you wish. Yeah. yeah. So you would know kind yeah, of his behavior. I've heard those. I, I just try to like mentally block some of them because I don't really want to know them. But so the first thing that occurred to me was, um, I, I don't think it was even a story that he told me. It was a story that my mom told me about, which I think she was told by a guy that he used to, that used to work for them. And it was about his first day on the job going out to meet clients with my dad. And dad would went to this one company where he was uh, talking to employees um, to kind of figure out, okay, what are the issues going on at this company? Um, what do you think that we should be doing differently, etc.? Um, and so he went to this one company with uh, his associate, and he did this. And then he, shortly after starting, he said, okay, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years now. I know what we need to do. And so... Then he had another client that was next door and um, he climbed over the fence in between the two properties and then went to go do the same thing at this other client. So he wanted <laughs> to make this first client think that like he was um, putting much more focus into really doing the research of figuring out um, what's going on, but it was so obvious that he just bailed (laughs) and went to do other work. And while it is definitely notable of dad that um, he was definitely the type of person who wouldn't hesitate to start climbing over fences and do things that were maybe um, not 100% 
uh, honest. <laughs> it, it also, I think, um, it was also notice, notable that instead of like going off to a bar and getting a beer or something, he just went and did more work with a different client because he could <laughs> and yeah yeah I, and those are the kinds of stories that i really like and uh i, I think are telling of uh, a personality that just wants to be constantly productive which i totally related to uh, you know i was think i was thinking while you were talking about um Earlier, you talked about how he he was always getting into fights, and I remember that story that he had about Coney Island and kind of getting into fights with sailors. You want to talk about that one? Oh, so um, he was like a shill or something like that. Yeah. So uh, during World War II, Dad worked at a shooting range in Coney Island as a shill um, to kind of lure uh, sailors and other soldiers to the shooting range. Um, he was, in fact, too young to actually join in World War II as a soldier. But as I mentioned earlier, he was very tall. Um, and he looked older than he was. And so he looked like he should be enrolled. So what he would do is he would go around wearing a zoot suit, which was basically a suit that used a lot of fabric. Um, back then, there were shortages of everything. So clothes became um, much more tailored and, uh, what's the word? Um, was there like a conservative aspect yeah, to it? Yeah, uh, yeah. They, they just... They just didn't include a lot of fabric. That was the style. Um, and so zoot suits contained extra fabric that wasn't necessary. So he would go around wearing this big suit, antagonizing the soldiers, and then he would challenge them to a shooting contest. Dad was actually a crack shot. He would do tricks um, like shooting the flame off of a candle and things like that. Um, and he would basically then just be like, hey, I can do this. Can you do it? And he would piss people off, which he was very, very good at doing. Oh, yeah. And yeah, that was his high school job. <laughs> that's, a, that's a damn good high school job set in uh, an era we will never ever uh, revisit an era of New York City and, and Coney Island uh, that uh, will never come back again mm -hmm. uh, yeah I, you know I was thinking about too um, when we started our first business back in 08 and we we were we told them we were going out to LA and then we were going to start looking for people to kind of give us advice to get us moving with this movie making thing. And immediately the first thing that came to mind for him was who do I know that I could send your way? And that's, that's really telling about him where, uh, I mean, none of the connections worked out in the least, uh, and that's fine. But the fact though, that 
you know, to have somebody who, you know, you tell them, oh, we're going to start making movies together. The first thing that clicks is, who do I know? And, and, and I really appreciated that because prior to that, whenever I told somebody I wanted to make movies, it was find another, find something else, son, you know, <laughs> uh, why is always the answer or, <laughs> you know, it was a snarky good luck, but his was immediately, well, who do I know that you could talk to? And I really appreciated that, regardless of the fact that none of those meetings ever worked out. Um, the LA meeting in particular, uh, and and this one fine hedge fund guy that we met on a regular basis over that summer, uh, those two got under my skin. But I really appreciated, um, for the first time, hearing somebody kind of just be like, "Well, let's explore this," you know. Yeah, well, Dad was generally very supportive of people going out, figuring out their own path, um, and uh, not necessarily doing things by the system. Um, plus, just as a consultant with years of experience, he knew the power of networking. Oh, yeah. Um, that was how things were done. That's how you function, basically. Unfortunately, he didn't have um, the connections that could have really opened doors. But, hey, he worked with family businesses in the food space primarily. So most of the people he knew were people who had, like, had trucking companies and then sold them and been like, I want to become an actor now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and he was also instrumental in us securing our first commercial gig. Yeah, that's uh, true. We did, a, for those of you who don't know, because I don't have any of this content online anymore, but our first real big paying commercial gig was a, a commercial for the expansion of a New York City restaurant into Long Island. So there's this hole-in-the-wall uh, Italian restaurant called Luzo's. Delicious. Uh, I mean, the kind of pizza that it's... it's thin crust the sauce is is made there it's not like stock sauce it's got fresh mozzarella and it just melts into your mouth when you eat it uh it, it's a rare kind of unique uh pizza and so they were expanding into long island and they wanted commercials for the local cinema since you could walk to the cinema from the new location and they wanted a tv version and an internet commercial and he secured us that gig which allowed us to buy all this production and post-production equipment that we then used to make some of our first festival films mm -hmm. the films that got me into my first festival that got us our first awards and um he was really instrumental in in negotiating that on our behalf because we just didn't know how to negotiate money we didn't we still struggle with it to some uh, level but he was really good at that. Yeah, he was. And uh, But then it's also easier to do it for someone else, I think. Yeah. Hence why agents exist. Yeah, I agree. It's hard it's hard to say, hey, you know, I'm worth this. Well, I'm worth more, but I'm cutting you a deal, you know. <laughs> uh, versus somebody saying you should really give this person this. You know, you and you, they're more likely to get that. So, yeah. Um, 
he knew a lot of people. He knew voiceover people. He knew editors. He knew writers. Um, and I remember, too, when I was in my 20s, you know, I came to New York post 9-11 and my brain was fried uh, and didn't really know. I didn't know how the real world worked because I grew up on I literally grew up on an island. You know, I say I grew up on an island and some people think I mean that metaphorically. But no, I, I literally grew up on an island detached from the real world. Physically, mentally, I didn't understand how the world worked. Okay. So when I came to New York City, it was like a wake up call. And I had to claw my way out of all these assumptions. I even believed in, in some uh, now what are obviously ridiculous conspiracy theories. And I even wrote a novel about it or a novella. And he ended up reading that novella. And I remember the day I was moving, we were moving in together and he pulled me aside. He goes, do you actually believe any of that stuff? And I, and I said, well, maybe to some extent when I wrote it, cause I think there, there, there are, are people, you know, back then I thought there were people, uh, kind of behind the curtains of, of our world that <laughs> were manipulating things. And he goes, well, Eric, I've been, to dinner with congressmen and senators. I've had them seated at my table in this apartment that you're standing in now. And I could tell you, there's not a single person in government who's capable of keeping a secret, let alone, let alone secrets to that extent. And that sort of set me on a course mentally of sort of mentally correcting kind of my misguided views of the world. Um, I had already shaken off my religious beliefs and adopted atheism because it just made a lot more sense to me. That that was the, the, the beginning of the end of sort of naive Eric. I was in my mid-20s, and to have this authority, he, I mean, he really was a voice of authority. He was a voice of experience. And he, just him saying that made me realize fucking right like people can't keep secrets let alone secrets that big even if it's life and death it's impossible and so i that that was the beginning of me starting to shake off all of that nonsense and so and then when i see years later all of these ridiculous theories continuing and growing and being adopted by people i was just like man i wish he was around so that he could invite all of these conspiracy theorists to dinner and be like, guys, cut the shit. You know, uh, he would have been the perfect recipe uh, for this day and age, to be honest. Yeah, it's kind of funny hearing you talk about dad as an authority figure, because I know a lot of people saw him that way. I and mean, it's how he earned his living. And I, I know that, like, the more you were around him the more you picked up weird mannerisms and expressions that were like him. And it was kind of weird in a guy I was dating. Well, it's weird to you but... because it's him. But the thing is, is I imitate people I'm around who are strong personalities. So I remember when I was at, when I first moved to New York and working retail, I started imitating the voice, voice patterns of one of our, my, the assistant managers of the first store I worked at. And then when I eventually moved to the Virgin Megastore, which was the second job I had move, after moving to New York, 
uh, I started imitating my friend Ron, who was a security guard. And I used to, if there's a unique pattern in the way they talk or the way they told stories, uh, and it was strong enough, I just mentally start imitating it. And after Ron, I remember there was this guy I worked with um, also at the store. <sighs> I forget his name. Oh, I think his name was Steve. And he had a bunch of sayings that I started saying. And, you know, it, it, when you're when your personality is strong enough and, and it can be imitated, uh, my brain is programmed to do it. It's programmed to fit into whatever circumstance it winds up in. I mean, you know, when whenever you've gone back with me to Maine to visit family, uh, I start dropping my hours, you know, I, and suddenly cars become cars and parking becomes packing and yeah, suddenly somewhere in Connecticut, you just develop like a <laughs> thick accent. Yeah. So, so, so I'm talking normally as we're going through into New England. And then as soon as we cross the New England thruway into Connecticut, uh, the R's start disappearing by the time we're in Maine. Uh, it's back to Hickville for me. And, but that's, that's kind of what was happening with Girardi. He's such an overwhelming personality that you almost almost want to kind of fit into his club right and so um that's what i think was happening and and to some extent it still happens i mean that's how i survive uh having the clients that i have is because i'm able to not even thinking about it it's not a deliberate thing i just kind of naturally sort of become part of the culture and the speech uh the the way of talking that that occurs so I could go into like a TV station, right? And let's say that network is hiring me to produce some video content. Um, I won't talk for the first day or two. Like when, when I worked for the James Altisha show last year, I didn't talk for the first week. I just listened. Uh, it didn't make sense. It didn't make sense for me to talk unless uh, they were looking for some specific information. And then after a week or two, I kind of had their vibe. And so whenever I did communicate with them, it was at that as close to that level as I could get. And then over time, I, I just kind of managed to communicate with them the way they understood it. Because I know that if I start speaking out of turn on my own accord, uh, as I am prior to understanding who they were, uh, it, I would have immediately not fit in. I would have immediately been like, and, and this I think comes from experience of just going through a brutal school system where I didn't fit in, uh, and I think I just naturally figured out that I need to stay quiet until I can figure out what the pattern is that these people are communicating in, and and so I do that now. I'll go into a TV station. I'll do it um, when I'm meeting with potential producers. I listen more than I talk, and then maybe after the second or third meeting, I'll talk more. It just is what it is, and, and that's that's the reason. Uh, I, I was imitating him because it wasn't conscious. It's just, it's almost a survival mechanism. Oh yeah, I totally understand that. It's just, and I've seen you do that numerous times, although the, there are definitely times when I, I feel like the version of yourself you're presenting is much closer to the real version of you. But um, I, I think it's just weird for you because it's him and you grew up with him. Yeah. Also, just like 
I, I still, in many ways, think of him as like the big guy whose shoulders I can climb on and whose very, <laughs> very small amount of hair I, I can start putting clips on <laughs> and braiding. Right. Well, I mean, you still climb on me sometimes. I do. Dad kind of trained me to do that. That's just like how <laughs> I believe you're supposed to interact with men. But, our, I, but in, in, in your defense, our cats climb on me too, so. Yeah. Of course, for all we know, they're just imitating me. That's, yeah, that's true. <laughs> they learn, they learn, we all learn from the people we're around. I guess that's the lesson of this part of the podcast. I suppose so. <laughs> And yeah, and I mean, as much as I we're talking about like how Eric was ended up being kind of like dad, like I'm a very, very different person than him, but I'm so much more like him than a lot of people give me credit for. Like how so? Um, so for example, um, when I was a little kid, uh, I would always sit and watch movies with dad and he would with a lot of them like just say what was going to happen next he just he'd never seen it before but he recognized the patterns of how it worked and he knew it and it wasn't like some of it might be really really obvious things like oh it's a romantic comedy they're gonna fight and then they're gonna get back together but then other times it was Weird little things like action movie. This character's going to die. This one's going to live. This one's going to die. These two are going to end up together. And it was things where it wasn't necessarily totally obvious, at least to me as a child. Or, oh, well, or it was something like, uh, oh, this character uh, is initially being portrayed as a bad guy, but it's going to turn out that he's actually a good guy because uh, they wouldn't cast that actor to uh, play the head of the mob or something like that. Right. And he was really, really good at it. And as a little kid, I thought that it was like, oh my gosh, daddy has a superpower. And then I grew up and I specifically remember, I think the two of us were watching Pearl Harbor and I started doing that exact same thing. I'd never seen it before, but you had. And I was like, okay, he's gonna, it's gonna seem like he's gonna die, but then it's gonna turn out that he's gonna be alive. And in the meantime, these two are gonna get together, but then he's gonna die and she's gonna end up back with the original guy. Yeah, that movie gets a lot of flack for that too. And <laughs> yeah, and... Uh, <laughs> I predicted exactly what would happen. And Eric looked at me and was like, have you seen this before? And it was just like, no, it, it's obvious, isn't it? And then I realized that I did the, like, I ended up my, like, totally unintentionally, my brain just like does those exact same steps that dad's dad does. Yeah. Or... Uh, and the same thing happens to me uh, sometimes when I'm doing trivia at my last company. These people thought I was so amazing at trivia, not so much because I knew the answers, but because I would regularly get them right when I didn't know them. 
Um, well, it sounds like your brain automatically goes to this um, this mode of what's the most obvious option, regardless of what you actually know. Yeah. So it's yeah. like, okay, so what are the patterns? What information do I know? So based on these, how would it end up? What would it be? Yeah. And I, and I do think that pattern is the key word here to understanding him because I think he did see patterns. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, That's how he saw the world. What's interesting is is um, I'm, I'm I'm remembering now uh, one of my interactions with him in the first couple of years of knowing him, and that was where I was kind of in this position and I'm still kind of mentally in this position where I think there are more bad people in the world than there are good people. And he goes, he, he immediately disagreed when I told him that. And he said, I don't know how many bad people you've encountered, but generally people will encounter this percentage of people across their whole lives because, and there, because there are more good people in the world, uh, it sounds like you've reached that percentage. And so moving forward, you'll probably only encounter good people. <laughs> like he told me that. And I'm like, well, I don't, I disagree. I think maybe you encounter good people because they're scared of you. And so they don't want to get their asses kicked. Whereas less people are going to be scared of me because I'm not a very threatening presence when I enter the room. And yeah, he had, I, and I don't know. I just, uh, I, now I think about it. I'm like, what percentage of people are good and bad and what makes them good or bad. And um, that's a conversation I always circle back to in my head from time to time. And, and I do wonder if most of that view of his is informed by the fact that people generally don't want to fuck with him. Well, also, I mean, there, I think that was definitely um, part of it, but also I think he just might've also had a slightly warped view of uh, who was good and who was bad. Like, when he was a little kid, he would play with um, the mobsters from the Jewish mafia <laughs> um, near his home. They they would throw him up onto the uh, what's that thing that thing that comes out on top of a store and provides shade. Um. Oh, the awning. Yeah, they would throw him up onto the awning of like a deli or something and he would roll off and then they would catch him. And then <laughs> later in life, and he he knew that like they weren't exactly the best people, um, <laughs> but he liked them and he played with them and he enjoyed it. And then later on in his life, he he worked <laughs> with clients like... Paul Castellano, who, uh, for those of you who don't know, was a famous mobster. Um, He was the guy Gotti killed to get the take over the New York Mafia. Yes. And, um, yeah, he he always insisted that he only worked with him on his totally legit businesses. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, like, he never seemed to have a problem with him. He was just, like... You know, I'm not really sure that guy was really set out, was really designed to run businesses. Yeah, I I, I think that maybe as long as he was only working on Castellano's legit businesses and Castellano was paying his bills, why not, you know? Uh, Just don't, and I could see him being smart enough to avoid getting sucked into all the other bullshit. 
Yeah. Although he uh, did once beat up one of Gotti's henchmen. Well, didn't he hang a guy out a window, or was that just like a story he liked to tell? No, no, that happened. Mom, <laughs> mom, uh, will, uh, uh, mama said that happened too, but that was something else. That was like, I don't know, some guy tried to like, uh, some sort of scam artist tried to get him to invest in something, and he did it. Um, he didn't always have the best um he, he didn't always have the best judgment about people um and so he invested in this and then it turned out to be bs and he wanted his money back and so he went with the obvious thing of you know hanging the guy out of a 30th floor window and demanding his money back and he yeah. got it he, he was actually the only person to get it he, uh, oh, this he is the story. On, yes. Yeah. He was later on asked to fly to Chicago to testify against these people since they'd scammed a whole bunch of people. And uh, wa- during the trial, the, the, uh, the DA, he wanted to paint the picture that Gerard was in on it, right? I'm, I'm not sure what exactly. I think he, that's he, what it was. He, Dad just said he wasn't like that good or... I don't, I don't know exactly what he was doing, but, like, he asked Dad, so how come out of all of these people you were the only one who got your money back? And Dad stood up and puffed himself up. And beyond being over six feet tall, he was also very broad um, and exercised constantly. He looked down at the guy and just said, because I asked him for it. The judge cracked up laughing because he all they all knew what that meant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I forgot about... You know, when we started this episode, I forgot about all the mafia stuff. And I know that that's yeah. some of the juicier stuff. Uh, you know that that table Hillary has that used to be in that apartment? It's, yeah. it's this glass, glass table with like a gold sort of... Uh, feet that it stands on and it's about maybe seven and a half to eight feet long yes something like and, that and uh, maybe four and a half to five feet wide it's a big big table yeah it seats six people seats six people and comfortably six people and so maybe even actually six people on each side so six seven no eight. it seats six people are you, are you sure yeah, yes, right. it's it was my table. dining room table growing That's true. up. <laughs> I feel like we fit more there, though, before. Yeah, so during holidays, we would, like, squish in a couple of extra chairs, and yeah. you could do that, but it wasn't so very So that's why I'm foggy about it. But I remember Gerard telling me at one point uh, he had a Coke dealer over, and he, you know, he didn't engage in any of the drug trade, but he let people use the apartment from time to time. And he, he was telling me about how there were just stacks of $100 bills on that table, filling up the whole table as a giant mound. So if you envision a table that big, just being the base for a huge mound of $100 bills, that's how, you know, so he, he had people who were just like, they had money from all sorts of sources. Yeah, and as a reminder, just an interesting Dad <laughs> was a totally legitimate business consultant who worked with lots of totally legitimate businesses. Um, but sometimes, who you know, <laughs> who you happen to just know, uh, 
is more interesting. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, so he he had the consultant part and then there was all of this other weird crap. And even some of the legit stuff like I don't know. I remember one company, they would like send over envelopes full of cash along with fresh pasta. Um, it's like a, like a gratuity. Yeah. And can it I, was can a totally I guess, legitimate relationship. Can I guess which one? Should I? No, don't. No, okay. it, it's just seems so shady, even though it, I, at least I don't think it was. Mom said it wasn't. I don't see what's shady about that. Yeah. It was shadier when our, 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 we, we try to get paid off. Well, the, the Russian mafia tried to pay us off to be quiet. That's shady. But that, that is shady. Although I I'm still so not it, 100% convinced that was the It's Russian a client mafia. that he has to represent, right? So he's representing them for money, but he also has to understand what their product and services is. So it makes sense to me. I mean, it's up to him if he wants, if he wanted to claim it with the IRS and, and maybe he, they, you know, they made a deal to be paid in cash. Well, so actually this was something where, um, he, uh, did the consulting, but he, the per, the person couldn't, um, afford to pay him until their business grew a certain amount. Uh, so, so that makes sense to me. Um, he was paid after the fact, which is why they were delivering stuff. Uh, Really good pasta, though. I know. They're still around. Yeah, they are. <laughs> so I did guess right. Well, um, let's continue this in a few weeks. I think that if we can cobble together some more stories, we could start piecemealing uh, this, this person's life experiences into something useful for everybody. Uh, but I, I think the takeaway here is... Uh, networking is important. <laughs> what else? What would you take away from some of his stories that we told today? Uh, let's see. Networking is important. Um, then I think part of him was also just a matter of be yourself and trust yourself. He was... A really big personality he wasn't someone who you would necessarily see doing the stuff that he did um he had all of these weird shady connections juxtaposed with this completely legitimate business and I think and he knew that despite everything, he could do the business and he could be a good consultant and provide good advice to his clients and that he knew what he was doing. Yeah. And I think part of it is just a matter of trusting yourself to do that. That's the perfect takeaway for this series. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Jan. You're welcome. And we'll continue this in a few weeks when we've cobbled together more stories. I'm I'm at a point now. I'm so excited as we've been recording this about this content that we should start reaching out to people and see what they remember. Well, I have more stories. All right. So I've let's lived with him for quite a few years. Well, let's keep this going um, and we'll make it an ongoing series. 
Okay. All right. 